Good morning, welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. Delighted to see we are live and uh, joined by Ben Jacobs this morning. Morning, Ben. Good morning. Back to hotel life for me. And you can yeah, see the see that. background <laughs> once again. I know last time people were wondering what it was. So I've got you a good angle on her this time. It's definitely the Queen of England. It's not Jamie Vardy, which was my favourite suggestion the last time I was on. <laughs> in this people just think you randomly doodle on your wall, I think. Uh, that's <laughs> what it is. But, that's uh, also no, true. This is a hotel uh, that Ben is in. He's on the road and uh, good to see uh, Ben. And it's funny, before we uh, started the, the show, we, we're in the green room and just chatting about the transfer window. And this is what it reminds us of. Groundhog time. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. <laughs> it is a bit like Groundhog Day, the transfer window, Ben, isn't it, when we do shows? Because ultimately, from a Newcastle United perspective, um, I've got to say it's quite calm on the timeline on Twitter, especially. People aren't getting panicked and, you know, we've got a good team, we've got a good squad. We know we need to strengthen. We know we've got the frailties of, P, you know, PPV, uh, um, you know, the, the PPF, uh, financial fair play, sorry, FFP uh, surrounding us. So from our perspective, we're in a... You know, we're, I think we're in a calmer situation than, we, than I can remember in a long time in January because, you know, normally Newcastle fans are going, well, when are they going to get this one? When are they going to we're going to get over the line? But we're, we're actually being linked with so many players, as we have been in previous transfer windows since the takeover went through, that I, I just think there's a, there's a more relaxed and chilled atmosphere amongst Newcastle fans. Yeah, and there's bound to be because the club are flying and we have to remember why they're where they're at at the moment with a great chance of winning the League Cup and hopefully qualifying for Champions League football. And when you've got momentum, and I know firsthand, having seen Leicester win the Premier League, you don't want to tinker with too much. And then, as I've said many times, the strategy has to be sensible as far as the finances are concerned because they don't have Champions League football yet. So the last thing they want to do is bring in too many and pay a certain wage and rock the boat internally by doing so and then find that they finish in fifth place and they regret the fact that they've gone against their strategy and their structure. And that's why the summer is going to be more important for Newcastle than January. And I've said this many times and it sounds strange, but if you look at the football side, of course, everybody at the club wants success. But if you look at the strategy and the finances, success can also come too soon. And that's not to say that it's not welcome. Of course it is, but you budget based upon a developing plan. And when it's slower, you've got more time and therefore the risk is lower. Whereas if overnight, as Leicester found when they won the Premier League, suddenly you have to invest. There's more of an urgency. And look at Nottingham Forest as well. Because they came up, they had to spend and invest and revamp their whole squad. And it's taken time. Thankfully, from their perspective, they're now moving in the right direction. There's chemistry, they're winning games. But the start of the season was poor. And they look gone as very early on. So it shows you that when you're forced to adapt to success, it's not always the easiest thing to do. So you want it. But if it comes so soon, that unexpected nature means you've got to be very careful in this January window because Newcastle want to make sure that they don't do something now that if they don't get Champions League or if they do get Champions League, but it's, let's say, only for one season, comes back to haunt them as far as their books are concerned, financial fair play is concerned, their wage bill is concerned. And you've also got to look at it and say, 
Eddie Howe is going to try where possible and give preference to the players that have taken Newcastle this far. So bringing in somebody, Hakim Ziyech is a good example. He's been linked with Newcastle. Yes, they like him, but the wages are sky high. And imagine what that does to the squad. If he comes in and he immediately plays, knocks somebody else out of the side that you could make an argument has helped Newcastle this far and then is earning a lot more money than most of the players or is certainly one of the top earners, then you're in quite a difficult position because he's effectively coming in on a Champions League package. And that's because at Chelsea, he's on a Champions League package, regardless of where they finish this season. And then every single player is either going to ask for that kind of wage or if Newcastle make Champions League, want a renegotiation. And that's actually the most challenging thing. I remember this from Leicester. There were a load of, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but journeymen effectively at Leicester that were players who had played in more than one division, were over the age of 25 and won the Premier League. And then, of course, Claudio Ranieri went into a summer period where Leicester had Champions League and they spent big. And every single player that came in was on an incredible package because they were fishing in a much bigger pond. And every other player at Leicester, even the likes of Jamie Vardy, who was still on good money, Kasper Schmeichel, Wes Morgan, and so on, all said the same thing. We won the Premier League. We're the ones that got you in the Champions League. Why are all these new faces coming in on better packages, bigger incentives, larger wages? And are they going to go straight into the side when we're the ones that earn Champions League football? And I think that as a manager, you're in a very difficult position because you want to stay loyal to what you've got. But of course, every single manager can always improve and you're not going to turn down quality. So in January, coming back to the now, Newcastle just need to make sure that they don't do anything that significantly alters their strategy now before anything is guaranteed. Otherwise, it might come back to haunt them strategically and financially speaking in a window or two if things don't go according to plan. Yeah, uh, lots of questions coming in, so we will come to them. I do have a few to go through on Twitter as well, which I'll come to with the second half, but I'll go with the live chat first. Uh, rumours this morning about Diaby um, going to potentially Arsenal. Any rumour uh, stuff on that? Newcastle, of course, been linked with Diaby um, in the past. Jordi Toombalife was in in the chat slightly earlier there saying Diaby linked again. Any truth in a possible move this window? <laughs> Seems to be a, a running theme, this, isn't it? Newcastle and Arsenal both going for the same players. Yeah, and we know from the RB it was a bit of a summer saga, if you like, and eventually the player decided to stay at Bayer Leverkusen. And from Arsenal's perspective, they've certainly made contact. Newcastle have been tracking DRB for a while, but haven't done anything yet. And the challenge remains the fee, which I think might put Newcastle off in the context of the previous point that I've just made. With Arsenal, it will be very intriguing to see whether or not they can either get any leeway on the Leverkusen side or alternatively they pay up because you're talking about a 23-year-old going mid-season and guess what? Because Mikhailo Mudrik has just gone to Chelsea for possibly a total package if we include the add-ons of 100 million euros, so about 88 million quid, Leverkusen are using that as a guide because they have similar profiles there, both wingers, and they're both in their early 20s, and it's mid-season, and Leverkusen don't want to sell. So I think that the Newcastle interest is genuine. There's no denying that, but they've not done anything with it because the fee is astronomical. Now, 
can Arsenal get that down? And do Newcastle get wind of that and enter the race in the final two weeks of the window? That remains to be seen. But at the moment, I think it would be very strange for either club because if Arsenal get DRB, it will be celebrated. But imagine if the fee is similar to the Mudrick package, then Arsenal fans will again ask the question, why did they not do more in terms of the add-ons and the structure to get the number one target? Why are they scrambling on a similar value for a secondary target right at the end of the window? And from Newcastle's perspective, I certainly don't see them dropping anywhere near to now the quoted price of £88 million. Now, when we say £88 million, we have to be clear here that that is purposefully increased to price out a mid-season sale. So the previous valuation of Diaby was a whole lot lower. Some will tell you that it was 60 million, but actually, from my understanding last summer, something in the region of 40 to 45 million plus add-ons. So maybe taking it up to 60 million, 65 million, but the actual guaranteed fee was not 60 million. It was closer to 40 to 45 plus add-ons. So you can see now, because of Mudrick, because of mid-season, how Leverkusen have effectively added a third on the total package that they supposedly would want to, like West Ham did with Declan Rice, scare off suitors. And sometimes when a price is quoted, people come back to me and say, that's nuts. It won't be anywhere near that. How can they possibly charge that amount? And mid-season, a club can do whatever they like because it's not a buyer's market. It's a seller's market in January. So we should take this price quote with a pinch of salt, but we should also be clear that it's not a market value estimation. It's a number to scare off suitors because Leverkusen are under no obligation to sell. He's contracted until 2025. And as a consequence, it's going to be very, very difficult to prize him away. And what Arsenal and if Newcastle enter the race, and they haven't seriously yet, will hope is that perhaps the player end tries to force something. But we start to run out of time, which means that if Leverkusen just drag their heels, the window will shut. And that's why with that estimate above market value, clubs have to work out very quickly and speedily if there's any leeway around it. Can it be done in a loan with an obligation to buy for clubs that have still got space to make loans? Can it be done in a way where the guaranteed fee is healthy, but the overall package is lower? And again, what's going to be difficult for Arsenal and for Newcastle is just the fact that much like Rafinha, now with DRB, much like Mudrik, the market is using other valuations and transfers as a guide. And then because it's mid-season, they're adding a bit more because they actually don't want to sell at this point. So I still think DRB might be one to watch in the summer. And if anything gets done now, any suitor that's successful is definitely going to have to pay above market value. And if Arsenal feel that there's an urgency to sort of quiet the noise around their failure over Mudrik, then they could move. But it would be ironic, wouldn't it, if they were to meet the valuation for Diaby, having been reluctant to do so for Mudrik. And from Newcastle's perspective, I don't see any possibility at 100 million euros, 88 million quid of them to enter the race for Diaby because of the first point that I made about them not wanting to get ahead of themselves with their spending before Champions League football is guaranteed. 
Okay, and then I did like this from Johnny goes subliminal messages from Ben about how I changed to Adidas. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what he has on in his uh, hotel room, mate. I think it's as simple as that. Uh, John does have a sensible question. He goes, does Ben have any information on the young right-back Fresnado? Apparently his agent has been holding court in London's reports over the weekend that he'd been entertaining a few different clubs. Any? Uh, can you shed any light on that, Ben? Yeah, that's absolutely true. The agent was in London. And I think sometimes when people hear London from a Newcastle perspective, they perhaps panic a little bit that there's another club involved. But remember, the location doesn't mean a great deal. All clubs take meetings in a variety of places away from their home city. And that's to be covert. Liverpool, for example, have their main recruitment office in London and Newcastle also do a lot of business in London as well. So just because an agent's in London, it doesn't mean that it's related to a rival. It could be Newcastle United as well. And when an agent's in one place, the clubs often come to that agent rather than the agent jumping from city to city. Otherwise, again, if you follow the agent and it worked the other way around, you'd know exactly who is talking to who. The agent stays in one place and it's away from the city where the football club is, or it's just in the capital, there's an easier ability to go under the radar. So that's the first thing that is very important to note. The second thing to say is that there's a variety of clubs interested in Fresneda, and that's because he's a hot talent. He's in a position where a number of teams like to strengthen and would ideally prefer to bring in a younger player who they can develop over time, but potentially use as cover. So we have Newcastle there, Chelsea there, Arsenal there. Wolves have also been interested as well. And over in Spain too, Real Madrid and in Italy, Juventus have also been linked with moves as well. And part of the reason for this is because there is repeatedly suggestions that there is a low-ish release clause somewhere in the region of £9 million. And the release clause will go up if teams wait because it is sort of staggered or structured based upon the amount of appearances that he plays. And that, I think, is why we're seeing a lot of movement in the market now because clubs that don't choose to trigger the release clause now might have to pay a whole lot more in the summer. So the agent's name is Louis Badeji. And he has been in London to discuss a potential move. Nobody at this point has actually triggered the release clause or placed any kind of bid around it. But it's definitely one to watch in the last two weeks of the window. So no firm offer yet, but a ton of interest. And when there's this much interest and this little time left in the window and a release clause that's going to be going up soon, you have to logically assume that somebody might move in the final two weeks of the window. And then from the perspective of Real Valladolid, they're not forced to sell in any way, shape or form. So if somebody comes in above the release clause or with a different structure, then they can absolutely choose to reject that. But obviously, if there is a situation where somebody does just trigger a release clause, there's nothing that Real Valladolid can do. So Newcastle is certainly monitoring the situation. I don't think at this point there's a clear standout favourite because it's likely to have more than one club that actually agrees a deal. And then it's going to be about the pitch to the player. So I suppose that the challenge that some clubs have got, maybe Newcastle included, but certainly Chelsea, is what would actually be the role at the football club 
for a young player like this. Because when you actually look at Fresneda and his development, he's 18 years of age and he only turned 18 last September. So he won't be 19 for the best part of nine months. And he's winning caps at Spain youth level. And this season, he's suddenly started to figure significantly in La Liga. He's played nine games in La Liga and I think it's 10 in all competitions. So the development is there. If he rocked up at, for example, Newcastle, he's not going to get in, in all likelihood, barring injury, at right back, because we all know there's an automatic starter there. And similarly at Chelsea, if Rhys James is fit, he's not playing at right back. So clubs, I think, that are looking for right backs are in a very difficult position, particularly Newcastle and Chelsea. Do they go for more of a versatile player so they have a chance of game time? In other words, right back, centre back or right back, right midfield or potentially right back, but can switch sides to left back. Or do they go young or do they go veteran who doesn't mind the fact that they're basically coming in as a reserve or a backup or for depth? And in Fresneda's case, he's so highly rated that there's got to be a plan. And that plan doesn't necessarily have to be at Newcastle United imminently, immediately, but quite clearly, there has to be that development of where you're going to get the game time. So anybody thinking about bringing in Fresneda has to be able to sell to the player on either the game time or a loan away or some kind of integration around pathways that's going to say, yes, you'll come in and this is when we think that you'll be a first team player. And he's that good that early that I think a lot of clubs are going to be split as to what to do with him certainly in the case of Newcastle and Chelsea, because if you need that cover, you keep them at your football club. But can you persuade an 18-year-old of this talent to wait at your football club, especially when you don't necessarily have a clear sense of when he might be your number one right back? And that's the challenge in all of this. So it's a strange one, really, because there's nothing Real Valladolid can do if the right offer comes in. But if you were the player... Certainly if it was me, not that this means anything, but I'd be tempted to stay at Real Valladolid for a little bit longer, see out the season, play another 10, 15 games in La Liga, and then see where my development is and who comes in for me in the summer. So that, I think, is the challenge in all of this. But the situation is basically there's a ton of interest, but no firm offers yet. Okay, that answers that uh, question. Um, the one on the screen is the next one we're going to look at. Uh, anything in reports of Mourinho coming home? I, I mean, you know, Mourinho was certainly a talented player, um, you know, and, and certainly probably arrived at Newcastle maybe he's a little bit too early in his development. Um, you know, is this one that's a, a potential? I mean, they often say never go back, but... Peter Beasley had two great spells at Newcastle. Um, Mark McGee, if you go back in time, was horrendous uh, his first time round, but then came back and was a star man alongside Mickey Quinn back in the, the late 80s. So what's, what's your take on this one, Ben? Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of speculation around this one without a ton of substance at the moment. And what's interesting is that Mikel Marino said that in his development, he felt that his time at Newcastle was actually really helpful and allowed him to build as a character and mature as a footballer as well. So there's still quite a lot of love for Newcastle United, and he's on record as saying that. And I think that the physicality that he learnt and brought to his game at Newcastle and the intensity both of games, but also training 
as well really helped him develop. And now he's a different player to the point where he's courting interest once again from the Premier League. Newcastle, I don't think, are necessarily too intent on bringing him back to the football club. He obviously spent one season on loan, first of all, from Dortmund and then ended up joining and playing in 2017-18. Didn't feature significantly, but played almost 20 Premier League games, scored a goal as well, and then went off to Sociedad. And what he's done at Sociedad is return to the kind of player he was at Osasuna long before Dortmund and Newcastle, where as a midfielder, he's a little bit more dynamic and explosive. He gets a lot more freedom, by the way, at Real Sociedad as well. And he's added goals to his game. So if you look at his time at Newcastle, I think he only scored one goal in about 25 games in all competitions. If you look at a very short spell at Dortmund, he didn't score at all. But if you go back to Osasuna, he was, to some extent, a goal-scoring midfielder. And now, if you look at his time at Sociedad since leaving Newcastle from about 2018 to present day, he again has been able to chip in with a few goals. Not to the degree where you'd call him an out-and-out goal-scoring midfielder by any stretch of the imagination, because that's not really his primary aim. But it's about that player and this, I think, is what Newcastle would like, that can just chip in with two or three, maybe in a good season, five or six. And then suddenly it alleviates the burden on Callum Wilson. It helps Miguel Almiron. And what we're seeing with Marino is he's suddenly become a very direct midfielder, a very physical midfielder, uh, quite a tenacious at times midfielder. But there's still that calmness. It's a cautious aggression. It's a controlled type of aggression. And that might be what Newcastle wants. And he's been capped for Spain now since 2020. But as I understand it, the Newcastle links are not likely. And it actually is more Liverpool who are potentially looking at him for the summer. And it then would be about what the valuation is. And that's the other factor from Newcastle's perspective, that when you had a player, not only do you know a bit more about them in terms of their value, their personality, but you also have to factor in whether or not you're going to get any value buying them back. So if you look, for example, at the Newcastle sale to Real Sociedad, I think the fee was something in the region of 10 million. Now, if they buy him back, they're going to have to be paying something close to 45, even 55 million. So there's a value aspect to that as well that might put Newcastle off. But as I'm told, January is quite unlikely. Summer is a lot more possible. He's definitely on Newcastle's list, along with a variety of other players in that position. And from Newcastle's point of view, I haven't heard a great deal in terms of concrete interest in bringing him back. No, uh, I, I just think that's a one for the, uh, you know, for the headline writers. I've, I've got to be perfectly honest and uh, I can't see uh, anything in that. The, uh, the the one person who looks like he will be extending his deal is Karius. Uh, what does this mean for Dubravka, Ben? Um, because, you know, one would imagine that Karius is signing, um, uh, you know, he's pen to paper because he is going to be the number two. Does this mean that Dubravka could be on his way out? Because Newcastle will still have a... A little bit of strength and depth with, you know, with goalkeepers. I mean, it's 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 an overcrowded position. Eddie Howe has to act. So, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I don't know whether Karius is guaranteed the number two. Obviously, we saw Dubravka start in the FA Cup. And remember, before he went to Manchester United, Eddie Howe said he was gutted to lose Dubravka. And had Dubravka stayed, there wasn't that much. We spoke about this at the beginning of the season between Dubravka and Nick Pope. Hindsight's an easy thing. And now Pope is the clear number one and was brought in as the number one. Dubravka knew that and wanted the Manchester United challenge, but really not a great deal between them. The only thing obviously working against Dubravka is the fact that he's 34 years of age. So he's coming towards the end of his career. And the oddity about Dubravka is that he went to Manchester United, didn't feature heavily and then wanted to come back to Newcastle. It wasn't Newcastle that said, we want to bring you back. It wasn't Manchester United that said, we want to send you back. It was Dubravka that said, I want to come back. So that may be an indication that he would quite like to stay and fight for the number two, be the kind of cup goalkeeper, maybe come in and play the odd Premier League game. But as you say, if Karius ends up staying at Newcastle, which is likely, then there's actually more of a fight between two and three for the number two than there is between one and two for the number one, because Nick Pope has been outstanding. So it's a strange situation. And obviously, from Karius's point of view, he wanted to stay and the intent at the club has been to keep him. But this all started before Dubravka returned. And everybody knows that Newcastle have got too many goalkeepers and there's been a feeling and remains a feeling that in January, if at all possible, it will be Carl Darlow who leaves the football club and Newcastle want to move him on sooner rather than later. And financially, obviously, it's a very easy deal. Clubs can get Darlow, but there has to be that level of interest. And it's a strange situation for Darlow because he has a decision to make. Does he want to go to a Premier League club where there's minimal interest and be in the same position at Newcastle United and be a number two or even a number three, potentially? And there, for example, is some interest from Brentford in that capacity or does he more likely want to drop down a level and get some first team football? And then there's several clubs within the championship that are currently looking to explore that possibility. So I think that Darlow will go and Newcastle realise that they have to try and clear out the goalkeepers. So within the championship, keep an eye out on Huddersfield Town, on Hull City, on Stoke City as well. And then in addition to that, try and take a look at Charlton, even in League One, who would like to have a goalkeeper and they might be one to watch too. But yeah, I think Karius will stay. And then with Dubravka, it's sort of a transitional period because he's played for Manchester United, he's played for Newcastle. And therefore, anybody thinking about signing him will probably now be looking more towards the summer. So he might be a bit of a loose part between now and the end of the season. And then come the summer, I would expect a fair amount of interest in Dubravka. And we still need to keep an eye out on Leicester as well, who have loosely looked at Dubravka before in the past, certainly before he went to Manchester United. And with Danny Ward being a little bit hit and miss, we need to wait and see to some extent whether they choose to move or have got other targets in mind. I think in the summer, there'll be a big merry-go-round of goalkeepers as well. And my opinion is that Chelsea might bring in another goalkeeper because either Kepa or Mendy, once it's clearly defined and they're both fit, who's going to get the game time? The other one might want to go. We knew over the summer that Kepa might be the one to move. I think that because of the World Cup, there still could be some interest in Emi Martinez as well. And that will, again, provide 
merry-go-round in other places. And because comparative to outfield players, uh, there's so few goalkeepers because it's just a singular and specialist position. When one goalkeeper moves, you often get a flurry of goalkeepers moving. I don't think it's impossible that Jordan Pickford will end up going somewhere else, especially and obviously if Everton go down. So that is one to watch as well. And then I know that a number of clubs are very keen indeed on Rob Sanchez at Brighton, who's had an excellent season too. So we're going to see a lot of movement around goalkeepers, but I think Carriers will stay. I think that Dubravka is a bit of a spare part, but it will be interesting to see who is deemed to be the number two out of Carriers and Dubravka. And then obviously, as I've already said, Darlow has a choice to make between being a backup in the Premier League for another club or alternatively finding himself down in the Championship or League One and playing more regularly. Yeah, I mean, didn't play much for Manchester United, Dubravka, uh, to be fair. But um, yeah, I, I get your point, Ben. I think um, it's one to watch. We'll see uh, exactly what happens. OK, halfway through the show, uh, as always, we have the ads. A big thank you to all of our sponsors, as always. Thanks to Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com and our website, skipsandbins.com. Easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensaries, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at the gohd.com. Thanks to Mr. Vicky's sources, which are handmade in Cumbria. And you can find them at mrvickies.co.uk. If you want to make an order, give them a call on 01768 210102 or email info at mrvickies.co.uk. Thanks to Blowhole Breweries. You can get a selection of beers and uh, the cans are in the uh, design of the old Newcastle United entertainers strips. Blowholebrewery.co.uk Thanks to Melly's Carpets and Beds. Laying our reputation, one recommendation at a time. The best quality around at the cheapest prices. Melly's Beds and Carpets.co.uk. Email sales at Melly's Beds and Carpets.co.uk or give Melly a call on 01670-632-216. And thanks to United Group Travel Limited, UK Coach Holidays in Morbeth, 01670-362-460 or mobile 07957-141-654. Graham, your driver, Beverly answering your calls and looking after you on your tour. Some great deals coming up there. Get yourself onto the website to check them out. Thanks also to Media Arts, who uh, do all of our videos and help us with the technological side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls End, Newcastle, and the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe to the channel, then hit the subscribe button below. Hit the thumb up, which is the like button, which does us a big favor with the algorithm. And click share. Share it to Newcastle United, Facebook groups or Twitter accounts or your own social media to help our community grow. And if you want to join the channel, hit the join button. And for as little as $1.99 a month, you can get some members only videos and chances to win some fantastic prizes. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and the rest. Don't forget as well that we do events through NUFC Matters. And this one is the next event coming up, Friday the 24th of February, an evening with Newcastle United legend Steve Howie. 
Friday the 24th of February, Tyneside Irish Centre, and tickets are available at £50 from newcastlelegends.com. If you also go into Woucher and search for the event, you can pick up a bargain on there. Don't forget, we also support the Food Bank on this channel, www.nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk is where you can find the Match Day Bucket. You can make a virtual donation to the Match Day Bucket 365 days of the year to keep helping the Food Bank in Newcastle. Don't forget, we're going to meet and greet with Warren Barton coming up. Uh, all proceeds going to the Food Bank Friday, January the 27th. He is uh, having a whistle-stop tour of Newcastle uh, when he's here from the US. So tickets are a tenner. All proceeds going to the Food Bank. Tyneside Irish Centre, Friday, January the 27th, 7.30 till 9. Uh, he'll be doing a quick Q&A and uh, he will be signing stuff and, uh, yeah, having a chat with Newcastle fans. So get yourself along. Nobby Solano will be there on the 25th of March. And same venue, book from nufcmatters.com for your tickets. Tickets only £15 for that. And Steve Watson is the next big name announced for the Surf Cafe, 2nd of March, uh, down at the Surf Cafe. Don't forget, there's only 35 tickets available at that venue. Very small venue. The two Nobby Solano events down there sold out in minutes. So uh, if you want tickets for an evening with Steve Watson on the 2nd of March, then get your tickets today direct from the venue okay next up on uh, our transfer talk today is uh, this man Neves from uh, uh, from Wolves and uh, yeah a few people asking about him in the uh, in the chat um what's your take on this one because again it's uh, it's an exciting player it's a player at another Premier League club just chat this one Certainly for January, I mean, Wolves have turned their form and season around under Julian Lopetegui. Nevers is their captain. Wolves didn't allow him to leave towards the back end of the summer. And the same, by the way, for Jaron Moutinho as well. So long before form was turned around because Wolves had a dreadful end to last season and a poor start to this season, the club still stood very firm that they wanted to keep hold of their best players. And Wolves at the moment don't want to be seen as a selling club. So I think that there's very real substance to Neves moving somewhere in the summer, especially if he can get Champions League football. We know that Arsenal have looked. We know that Liverpool have got a relatively concrete interest as well. But again, it's more forward planning. I would put Neves in the category of Jude Bellingham, Alexis McAllister, possibly, not definitely, but in likelihood, Moises Caicedo as well, in the sense that these are players you've got to work on now, but it becomes quite unlikely you're going to get them now. And the caveat to that is you change the narrative by being bullish and dropping a big fee towards the end of the window, like Leicester were forced to entertain when Chelsea took this approach to get Wesley Fofana. And then you get a divide between what the manager wants and what the board wants. And with no time left in the window, the club has to decide whether they'll take a price that's above market value or whether they want to hang on to their player until the end of the season. And this is where, even though logically you'd say they're never going to get a replacement, of course they'll hang on to him, there becomes a bit of a divide sometimes between the manager and the football department and the board. And the board get the final say. And the board perhaps say, hang on a minute, this offer's too good to turn down. So to get Neves now, first of all, it's unlikely. And second of all, I think a club would have to pay well above the market value. And I come back to what I said right at the beginning of the show, that I don't think Newcastle have that strategy now. You've got three different kinds of strategies within football, broadly speaking, anyway. You've got the Chelsea approach, which is we need something now and we're prepared to spend now 
because we believe even though it's a bit more risk reward to both our team and our finances, it will provide an immediate return and then a long-term benefit as a consequence. And if it works, we'll be glad that we did it. And I think that's why they're spending now. And the downside of that approach is that you often pay slightly above the odds for players. And then that number comes back to haunt you because when you go to do business in the future, people say, well, you paid 100 million euros potentially for Mudrick. So we're going to quote you a similar fee for a player of a similar profile. And that strategy, number one, is what Newcastle United did last January because they had to spend in order to try and get out of trouble. Strategy number two is the Arsenal strategy where you stick to your guns and your valuation because you believe in your long-term project and it's advanced and you've already got the success. And strategy number three is the transitional strategy which a club like Newcastle are in where you'd like to do things the Arsenal way but your project's not yet built. So sometimes you have to go against your strategy and drop a lump sum and sometimes you have to not get a player that you want because it's too early within your progression. And that again is why summer's going to be more important to Newcastle United than necessarily this January. And because Newcastle are in that period of transition, to drop a massive fee above market value on Neves doesn't really make any sense. And as good as Neves is, and as much as Newcastle would like him in the squad, I still sense that the priority, it's only my personal opinion, not Dan Ashworth and not Eddie Howe, but I think if you could offer Newcastle one midfielder right now, they prefer a creative-minded midfielder rather than this more disciplined, conservative type. Yes, you can make arguments for both, but the beauty of the current midfield, in my opinion, is that Joe Linton's been given the more advanced role, but can actually play deeper. And Bruno, again, can be dynamic and box-to-box, but can also play deeper. And I think that if they had the ability to bring in a wider midfielder or a more box-to-box midfielder, that might be the preference over a traditional midfielder like Neves that can stay in his lane, be valuable on set pieces. Yes, get forwards when required, but certainly not to the same degree as, for example, in central midfield, somebody like Yuri Tielemans, who's got that freedom to have far more touches in the box. So what we have seen from Neves is that ability, of course, to weigh in with goals. And that's what I love about him, by the way, that even though he's described as a defensive midfielder, he's certainly not afraid to go forwards and play a vital role in attacks. And his goal scoring tally shows you that for a defensive midfielder to have played, I think, his 18 Premier League games and scored four goals. That's the same tally as last season. He scored four goals in over 30 appearances. And the previous season, he got five goals playing almost every game for Wolves. So we can't call him a defensive midfielder in the sense that he's not part of the progressive attacks. And that's the appeal. He's a modern defensive midfielder where there's more of a grey area because he does get forwards, but not to the same degree as Tielemans, not to the same degree at the moment as Martin Odegaard, who's having a phenomenal season for Arsenal in terms of his attack-minded output. But I still think that if they can only get one, for me anyway, it's going to be a wide, creative goal scorer, a sister, or a central box-to-box midfielder. And then Neves is a conversation, I think, unless anyone places an astronomical offer that will be more a summer saga rather than necessarily a late January move. And that's good news for Newcastle because they like the player and they're where they want to be in the summer. Then they will be able to compete with the Liverpools and the Arsenals of this world because if everything goes according to plan they'll have Champions League football whereas right now I don't sense that Neves would move mid-season for a club that doesn't have Champions League football.
Yeah, interesting. Thank you to Ian Hull on Twitter for that question. Uh, we will go with Dan uh, on Twitter now. He says, Minkovic, Savage, uh, I don't know a lot about him, but things seem to be stirring up. And there was somebody in the chat who also uh, asked about that. It was Davy Brewis. There we go, asking about Savage. Can you tell us anything, Ben? Similar kind of story to Neves, but unlike Wolves, um, they will be still bullish about letting him go. But there's a price for Neves, for sure. It's an astronomical one, whereas I think... With Milinkovic, Savic, it's a little bit different because there's a high volume of suitors, but there's a far more strong and bullish position from the Lazio side that they really don't want to sell. And that was the case over the course of the summer and even more so mid-season. So I think that price is an issue with Milinkovic, Savic. And then in addition to that, mid-season sale remains the case as well. So it wouldn't remotely surprise me if Milinkovic, Savic moves in 2023 and I think from the player perspective there's definitely a bit of a head turn regarding joining the Premier League because Lazio are not like Napoli they're not like Juventus historically they have been in and out as far as Champions League football and silverware is concerned and as a consequence because he's been there so long even though it might sound like a strange comparison it's like that Harry Kane position where he's not young and he's thinking to himself, if there is to be a big move, is it finally the right time to leave Lazio? He's been very, very loyal there. And suddenly you think to yourself, if the right package comes, if a new challenge comes, is there suddenly a logic to try from the player end, I mean, and push for a move? He's not quite in the Kane situation in the sense that Kane's 29, pushing 30. Milinkovic Savage will turn 28 in February. So he's got a season or two on Kane in terms of age. But I still think that he's probably thinking, maximise the interest in 2023 in the summer and stand a chance of winning consistent silverware and playing regularly for two or three seasons in the Champions League. I'm still told that even though there's admiration and the same can be said for Arsenal, that Newcastle haven't done a great deal on this front. And that is unlikely to change in the final two weeks of the January transfer window. And I'm still told again that the priority for Newcastle is in a slightly different position, like we said in the context of Neves. So I think that Liverpool will look at Milinkovic-Savic in the summer. I think that Arsenal and potentially even some outside of Europe will look at Milinkovic-Savic in the summer. And sure, Newcastle could enter that conversation. And the fact that they are, I suppose, pre-planning, should they make Champions League for these kind of positions and players, um, demonstrates the level, broadly speaking, of ambition. But in the short term, I think it's more about that wider or creative-minded midfielder. And if you were to say you got to pick, between a James Madison-type profile or a Milinkovic-Savic or a Neves-style profile, I still think the priority would be to move in the direction of that Madison-like player. And that's evident by the fact they put a bid down for Madison in the summer. They put a bid down for Jack Harrison in the summer. And I think that's more the profile in the short term that Newcastle are looking for. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with you, mate, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah, and Ian had asked the question, do you think we'll prioritise with centre midfield in this window as we're so late? I guess, you know, the, the you know the nerves were there for all to see, you know, amongst the fan base. If, um, you know, if, if Bruno had been injured for, for a considerable amount of time, you know, it would have been certainly a lack of creativity, especially with, uh, with John Joe out as well. Um, again, a lot of people talking about Chelsea. I'm, I'm, I mean, for me... You know, Les is saying, can Chelsea sustain this level of spending? Um, lots of people on Twitter asking this question as well. I'm sure you saw it, Ben. Andrew Malloy said, how will Chelsea spend this season affect future financial fair play? Could they sell some players to balance the books like Mount, who would fit nicely at the club, like our beloved Newcastle? Legacy Magpie said, may as well talk about who Chelsea are going to sign, mate. They have the, the financial fair play worked off uh, to a treat. Um, you know, a, a lot of people scratching their heads, really. But again, it's down to commercial revenue, um, and and you know, we we something we've severely lacked under Mike Ashley's leadership. Well, exactly, they're completely different clubs. I mean, Chelsea have had many seasons in the Champions League, many seasons with high prize money, many seasons with bigger commercial deals, and on top of all of that, their overall club revenue is far bigger than Newcastle's. They generate a lot of money from their academy. And sometimes you get unsung, unheralded profits that don't appear important, but of course they are. So Chelsea have got more leeway because ultimately, financially speaking, they're a far healthier, far bigger club than Newcastle United at the moment. Not talking in a football sense, in a fan base sense, purely financially speaking, Chelsea bring in more than Newcastle. Their academy is more developed. And then with financial fair play, we have to be very careful not to look at the fee. Because you might add up Chelsea's spend and say they've spent over £400 million in two windows so far and are still spending. But it's not strictly accurate because you have the guaranteed fee and the add-ons. And very rarely is a full transfer fee in every case paid in full. So Mudrick might seem like it's £100 million, but it's only €100 million Euros if Chelsea win the Champions League and win the Premier League during his tenure at the club across the contract. And that might happen statistically if we base it on history. It's likely, but it's not guaranteed. And of course, if it happens, then Chelsea bring in a whole lot of money because they've either won the Premier League or they've won the Champions League. So you don't care as much about spending that add-on. Second thing to say is that the fees are not all paid up front. Very rarely, unless you trigger a release clause, they'll be staggered. So they don't have to find all of that cash up front. And the third thing to say is that the fee is not reflective of financial fair play on the books in a singular cycle. So you offset the fee against the contract length, which is why Chelsea are offering 7.5 and 8.5 year contracts to a variety of players like Mudrick and Badia Shiel. And it allows them from an accounting purpose to spread the cost over multiple cycles strictly on the books. So the outlay of Mudrick will be split across three financial fair play cycles. And as a consequence, the actual damage on the books is more minimal. And this is also, by the way, from Atletico Madrid's point of view, why before Jawa Felix joined Chelsea on loan, he extended his contract by a year because, again, it allows them a little bit more wiggle room on the books. So there's sort of two ways of looking at it here, because if you keep doing this, then the damage is twofold. Number one, every single club you deal with holds you to account for the market value you've paid for other deals. 
So it's harder to negotiate. And then number two, it's actually quite hard to convince players sometimes to sign up for this length of contract. And contrary to belief, the saving at Chelsea's end is on the wage bill. So with previous Chelsea regimes, they've perhaps brought in a player on a three to five year contract. They might have paid a player like Mudrick in the past, 150,000, 200,000 a week. And then you're saddled with that on the wage bill. And this is the problem that Chelsea have had in the past. They've got a high wage bill and they've got some aging players on big money. Now you've got Mikhailo Mudrik who's come in and his wage, as I understand it anyway, is under £100,000 a week. So by Premier League standards, that's relatively low. So imagine if in two years' time he becomes box office, he becomes a Ballon d'Or contender, he fully lives up to his potential. You've suddenly got him on 100000 a week. So therefore... Every single, let's just say month, because my maths is terrible, but let's just say for the sake of it, the maths on his wage as a base rate is approximately half a million pounds a month at the moment. And again, just for the sake of the argument, it is half what Chelsea might have paid for a player like that in the past. Because everyone's saying they're paying him 200k a week and they're not, they're paying him under 100k a week. But just for the sake of the maths, and I suppose I'm moving a bit away from Mudrick to try and explain a point, so I don't want to be quoted on these specific figures. But let's just say for the sake of it that instead of paying Mudrick 12 million a year, it's actually only 6 million a year because he's on 100K rather than 200K. Then every single year that he's at the football club, you save yourself 6 million. And for the first three or four years, because it's such a long contract, even if he's box office, you got no need or desire to extend that contract and give him better terms because the whole point is that he's getting good money, much better money than Arsenal were offering or certainly better money than Arsenal were offering. So you say to Modric, listen, we're going to overpay you now a little bit, but you have to stay loyal to us and you can't come calling for a new contract two years into your eight-year deal, three years into your eight-year deal. So not only does Chelsea lower the wage bill and make it more incentive-driven, for him to earn any more but three years in or four years in so less than halfway into the contract not only have they got all the cards if a real madrid etc comes calling but each year on the wages they might have saved comparative to chelsea under abramovich and this is an extreme example i know but i'm trying to talk more broadly so you understand the strategy they might have saved six million a year so therefore 24 million has potentially been saved in the first four years of Mudrick's contract compared to the old Chelsea regime. And the add-ons are 24 million. So then you get a situation where four years in, Mudrick effectively, by agreeing to this deal, has actually offset any add-ons that you might need to pay with the saving in wages. And the longer he stays on those wages, the more value you get out of him if He lives up to his potential. If he doesn't live up to his potential, you start saying, yikes, we might want to offload him. And that's where the fee that you've paid becomes very challenging to recoup. And that is sort of the gamble of long-term contract and paying this big. But make no mistake, the wage aspect should not be underestimated because if he has longevity at the football club, there's no way that a year in, two years in, Chelsea are going to say, sure, now you can have 200k a week. Now you can have 250k a week. They're going to say you knew what you signed up for, an 8.5-year contract. 
So if you want a renewal, we'll discuss it three years in or we'll discuss it four years in, not a year or two in. And during that time, they'll start to recoup some of the money back because and I'm hesitant to use the word modest. But in the context of Chelsea, Big Six and Premier League, these are modest wages that Mudrick is on. So when you combine the academy income, the commercial income, any outgoings that they get, Ziyech they could get a fee for, Gallagher they could get a fee for, Pulisic when he's fit they could get a fee for, plus the fact that their wage bill is going down. And if collectively the entire wage bill goes down, so it goes down with a Kante renewal, it goes down if, and it's a big if, Jorginho renews, it goes down with any new signings that are also like Mudrik on modest Premier League wages, then in a year or two, that will make a massive difference as well to Chelsea's internal income. And as a consequence, they'll continue to be able to spend. So this is actually a very ambitious strategy. It's a very sensible strategy. And it needs a bit of time to pay off. But of course, people are just saying they're spending for fun. They're using an unlimited pool of cash. It's irresponsible. It's above market value. But it's not because on financial fair play, it doesn't get listed as a lump sum. And in reality, they're not spending this level of volume in one go. They're staggering it in structured payments. And not every number that you hear is definitely going to be paid because a percentage of it are add-ons. Yeah, really good point. Well made. Uh, plenty of people uh, enjoying this today. Only got about eight minutes left, so uh, probably want to get through uh, two more questions. Foxy was asking, uh, what's the situation with Varela from Boca? We made a bid and we inquired and it's gone quiet since. Um, not sure about whether we actually made a bid, but maybe we did inquire. Notice Rio uh, Valacano had a lower bid rejected yesterday as well. Is it just a case of Boca not wanting to sell? I mean, Newcastle, Foxy are playing the cards, as always, very close to their chest. Said business wouldn't be done until the, the very last week, ins and outs. I'm led to, you know, we're led to imagine as well from what Eddie Howe was saying at his press conferences. But yeah, I mean, again, I guess that's another one that we will uh, we will watch with interest. Yeah, and it wouldn't at all surprise me if there's a bit more substance to this one because we know that Newcastle really like the player. Again, it becomes quite a big outlay in the context of the actual profile of the player and the age. I think the feeling is that the offer for Varela was relatively high in terms of valuation. And therefore, if Newcastle uh, were to proceed, they would match what Boca are looking for, which is well in excess of 15 million, maybe even a little bit higher. So it's logical to think that even though that's a high fee for a player of this profile, it's still a low fee compared to the Madisons or the... Neves is and that kind of transfer. And that's the balance again, really, is do you spend big, but financially it's still a smaller number, but it's big for a player of this profile and this age and so on. Or do you ultimately decide that it's not worth the money? And we know that Newcastle are very keen in this type of area in trying to get young trying to get in midfielders of certain profiles and varieties. So unlike perhaps the real 18-year-olds, teenagers, even Endrick, who obviously ended up going to Real Madrid, maybe the difference with Varela is just that he's young, but he's not teenage young. He's 21 years of age, I believe, and by the summer he'll be 22. Uh, but I think that we have to be very careful 
about how much time he might need to take to Premier League football and still whether he's worth that kind of transfer fee. So I haven't made too many direct inquiries on this one, but the last time I sort of checked in, which was a week or so ago, I was certainly told that the interest from Newcastle is genuine, um, but we're running out of time within the window. I still think they'll surprise us Newcastle with something, with a, a late move or two, um, and it, it might not even be where uh, we think they're going to move because uh, this is the sort of beauty of Dan Ashworth in particular, as we saw from Brighton as well. Um, he's very good at keeping certain deals secretive, which is not great from the perspective of the media, uh, but a sporting director is doing very well in terms of his business if he's able to keep the media glare away or deflect it in other directions. And I think Chelsea did that relatively well, uh, even though they changed their mind on Mudrick, uh, they did that very well in terms of being able to uh, make it clear before they put an offer down that they might put an offer down, but maybe people are overfueling it. And then they went about and did their business very quietly until it was apparent they were in Turkey. And Dan Ashworth is very good at that as well. So, you know, we have to be very honest as journalists as well. We don't know everything. Uh, we try and relay the information to the best of our ability, but we're never going to be across everything. Arsenal, remember, surprised us all with Fabio Vieira. Uh, Chelsea, where I've got very good ties, surprised everyone with Carney Chukwameka. And it wouldn't at all surprise me if Newcastle pull something out of the bag uh, that is completely unexpected as well. And that's the wildness of the window. That is last minute movement. That is secret meetings. That is urgency sometimes. So I think that we have to give Newcastle credit for the fact that they have been quite conservative in this window, which is normal for January, but they've also been very good since the new ownership group have come in and Dan Ashworth has started, uh, to an extent anyway, keeping their business quite quiet and letting others make noise whilst they stick to their principles, they stick to their valuations, and uh, they make sure that they're not the target, like perhaps Chelsea are now, of fueling interest, of hiking up prices, of being played in the market. And that is very encouraging, because when you're a team with money, ambitious owners, but you're not going to get sucked into bidding wars, it, it all creates a situation where uh, you have everything, especially if they get Champions League football, they can have the football they want. They might get the silverware they want. They've got the momentum they want. They've got the manager they want. They've got commercial deals brewing that they want. They've got the evolution they want. They've got the mood they want. They've got the fan base they want. They've got the money if they want to spend it. And then the key thing is, do they have the strategy? Do they have the discipline? Are they prepared to walk away and not be impetuous and not get played within the market? And that's where I think the Rubens to some extent and Amanda in particular are key because PIF, as we've seen in the last sort of, 18 months or so, have been prepared to be quite distant. Yasser Al-Rumiyun is not involved daily in all of these transfers. He's not there at the table like Todd Bowley saying, I want this, I want that. He's very much letting the experts do their job. And I think that's quite important to stress because when PIF first joined, there was a lot of rumour about they want Mbappe, they're going to sign Gareth Bale. And that was all because at the PIF end, yeah, they would love players that they can use to promote Vision 2030 and wider Saudi Arabia aims. And if Newcastle reached the Champions League and through sponsorship deals, we're definitely going to see that over time. But there's definitely a respect from PIF to say we don't yet understand. And I mean this very broadly, the ins and outs and day to days of a recruitment department. So if Dan Ashworth is saying to his ownership group via Amanda or who knows, directly to PIF, that's just not worth it. Then I think that P 
PIF are very respectful of that, which is why to answer another question with Cristiano Ronaldo, when there were all these rumours around he signed for Al Nasser and there's somehow a Newcastle clause. Yeah. It's absolute nonsense. There's nothing in Ronaldo's Al Nasser contract that forces Newcastle or obligates Newcastle or names Newcastle even to use Ronaldo in the Champions League. But people love a headline. And actually, Ronaldo's contract, there's only a Champions League exit clause. It's a generic one and it is put in there by the player. So if any offer comes, he has the ability to trigger a clause to talk to that club and leave. But it's got absolutely nothing to do with Newcastle United. And I can tell you categorically that if Newcastle qualify for the Champions League, Eddie Howe is not thinking about loaning in Cristiano Ronaldo to take the glory and play in that competition. Not at especially all. Not because he'll be 38 at that point. So these are the kind of stories, I think, that get fueled through maybe the Saudi side, because there is that aspiration, of course, to have elite level players, marquee signings that can fulfill wider aims. But within Newcastle right now, there's very defined segmentation and respect between majority ownership, between day-to-day -day operational control, between recruitment and between football. And everybody knows their lane. And nobody, regardless of title, from what I'm told, is moving into a new loan a lane, I should say, uh, and playing the ego card, playing the authority card, playing the hierarchy card, because everyone's aware that that rocks the boat and Newcastle don't need to change anything or uh, even in the short term sign anything because uh, they're moving in the right direction. And that, I think, is why uh, we are going to see a quiet January. Yeah, I've just got to ask you, because we're, we're coming up to the end of the show now, just a, a couple, I put a photograph of Anthony Gordon up, uh, another player that's been linked this morning, Twitter going a little bit mad about that one, saying that he, he could be looking to uh, escape a sinking ship. Of course, Newcastle were linked with him in the summer. And uh, another one, which somebody asked in the chat, uh, Bowen, uh, of course, at West Ham. West Ham, of course, Dyson with uh, with relegation. Colin Wilson asked earlier, would it be worth having a punt at Jared Bowen? So just those two players again, I mean, uh, you know, any legs in either of those two deals before we finish, uh, Ben? I think Bowen is a difficult one. Uh, we know lots of clubs have looked at him. West Ham want to keep everything together at this point. And if they're going to lose Rice in the summer, are they prepared to lose Bowen as well? And the answer at the moment is no. But the player certainly has aspirations to move on to bigger and better things. But I don't think that there's too much in that one at the moment. And who was the other player you wanted? Anthony Gordon. Yeah, I mean, Gordon's a tough one. The player definitely had his head turned by that Chelsea interest. And we knew that Newcastle were interested as well. And Everton is unfortunately a mess at the moment in terms of its hierarchy, failed attempts at least to buy out the football club. Uh, they've got a new stadium incoming, which means that their finances, a bit like Leicester, because they've spent on their infrastructure, are restricted. But I don't think Gordon is the right fit now for Newcastle. And the problem with the teams that went for Gordon over the summer is they hiked up the valuation. So whether or not we're going to see a big enough drop in that to make a move possible, I'm not so sure. I think it's very, very clear that Newcastle liked the profile of Anthony Gordon. So that's the first thing to say. And as a consequence, you can never rule uh, a move out. But I'm not sure that this one is going to get done in the final hours of the window, which means that if there is to be any substance to it, again, we're going to have to look more at the summer than January. And, you know, just to finish, we have to reiterate again that 
sometimes when we're asked as journalists with particular clubs, and I would put Newcastle and Liverpool in particular in this category, we sound like we're saying the same thing. Oh, there's no substance to almost everything. It's going to be a quiet window. Don't be surprised if they don't do too much. Everything's the summer. Nothing's advanced. No bids have been placed at the moment. And people say, well, why is your answer the same to everything? And that, again, is the football manager mentality of why are we not moving? But January isn't about moving if you're doing well. As we saw 12 months ago, when Newcastle were not doing well, they moved in January. Now Newcastle are doing well. It's going to be a quieter window because it's ultimately a seller's market. So I'm not saying Newcastle won't sign anyone in the next two weeks. But I reiterate that if Newcastle have a quiet January, that is strategic rather than failure because they're exactly where they need to be. Yeah, I would agree with you on uh, most of what you've said today, um, which is no surprise. It's uh, it's always good to speak to you, Ben. Thanks to everybody in the chat. Sorry you didn't get everybody's questions. We'll cover a hell of a lot today, though, uh, as we always do. And uh, we will have Ben back on the show next week as the uh, the, clan, uh, the transfer window clock ticks down. Uh, but for now, Ben, thanks very much for sparing the time. And we will see you next week, Nate. Take care. Have a good week, everyone. Uh-huh.